Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs, and today I've got a really interesting interview for you. I'm going to be speaking with David Christopher of Open Media. And Open Media is an organization out of Canada that um, works in a grassroots fashion to bring awareness to various issues, uh, political issues, trade issues, etc. And I'm speaking again with David Christopher. How you doing, sir? Uh, hello, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few people in your organization. Can you tell me quickly about um, what your position is in open media and what you do specifically? Sure. Uh, my name is David Christopher. I'm the communications manager with open media. I've worked here now for just over uh, three and a half years. Uh, so I look after a lot of our uh, public-facing uh, communications, a lot of our media work. Uh, I'm involved in uh, one way or another in pretty much all the campaigns that we've been running over the last uh, three and a half years. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to uh, chat about uh, some of the highlights and uh, of our work uh, in the last uh, wee while. Okay. And I know you're based out of Canada. Um, I get your emails and communications in the U.S., I know you're heavily involved in the U.S. as well. Any other countries in which you guys work on issues? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're pretty much operating on a global basis now. Uh, we started off with a very small organization uh, here in Vancouver and uh, on the west coast of Canada. Uh, but since then, you know, we've we've really grown. Uh, one thing that we've discovered pretty quickly uh, was that the kind of digital rights issues uh, such as having an open and affordable and surveillance-free Internet, uh, those kind of issues that we were working toward in Canada uh, are also challenges being faced by people right, right around the world. Uh, and that each country's challenges when it comes to digital rights are really interconnected. Uh, so that's what initially prompted us to start getting involved uh, on a more international scale, uh, initially with, uh, for example, our campaign against the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnerships uh, Copyright uh, Provisions. Mm -hmm. Um, but since then, we've taken on a range of work. Uh, you know, in the U.S., you probably recall the big uh, battle over net neutrality rules uh, a couple of yep. years ago. Uh, we were heavily involved in that alongside a number of other uh, uh, groups. Uh, we're also really involved in the e copyright reform in the European Union at the moment. Uh, we've got some very bad ideas coming out of the European Commission over there, uh, and we actually have staff members uh, on the ground uh, in the EU uh, working on those issues. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're growing and expanding, uh, and I think that's a reflection of how important these issues are and how much people care. Okay. And... Uh what are some what are like three two or three current issues that people may or may not know about, and how will it affect them adversely in your opinion if these issues uh, succeed without any intervention? One really interesting one that we've taken on over the last few months is that there's a Supreme Court of Canada case uh, uh, that's going to have 
really profound implications for people's ability uh, to access information uh, and to uh, to share information uh, online. Uh, and, and not just those implications would not just be here in Canada, but uh, globally. Uh, so we at Open Media, alongside a, a number of other uh, organizations, have intervened in that case. Um, it's between uh, uh, Google on the one hand and a, a company called Equisec on the other. And now we're not taking sides between those two, but we are asking the court uh, to set a firm framework that will protect uh, people's right to free expression online. And of course, an important component of our right to free expression is our ability to access information online. Uh, the case all revolves around whether a court in one country such as Canada, uh, has the right to order an international company such as Google uh, to censor search results from its search engine, uh, not just in Canada, but globally. Uh, so, of course, you know, the implications there, are, if, if that were to go through, are incredibly concerning because you could see, for example, uh, courts on the other side of the world ordering American companies to take down content that would otherwise be accessible to Americans, or you could see American courts ordering uh, 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 companies in other countries to take down co content. So we really want to uh, try and nip this in the bud and uh, set a, a proper framework uh, that recognizes the, the sort of the global nature of the internet and how important the internet is as a tool for citizens all over the world uh, to access information and express themselves freely. Yeah, that's pretty serious because if you have countries like China, Russia, Iran, et cetera, that are known for censorship and the state controlling the Internet, um, mm -hmm. giving them the chance to intervene would be, uh, would be pretty bad. Yes, yes, that's definitely uh, one of the things we're, we're worried about. And uh, we know as well that the you know, Supreme Court of Canada is a fairly influential court. So, uh, you know, obviously its ruling would only have effect, legal effect here in Canada, uh, but it would set a precedent. It would set an example that other courts around the world uh, could be inclined to follow. So that's a big priority for us. Uh, you know, we're also, and for years now, we've been doing lots of work around surveillance and online privacy issues. Uh, I think probably most of your listeners uh, would be aware of uh, what Edward Snowden and other whistleblowers have revealed about how government spy agencies, not just in the U.S., but also here in Canada, many other countries around the world, are actually using the Internet almost as a tool of, of mass surveillance, uh, collecting vast quantities of uh, personal information uh, from law-abiding citizens uh, with no real distinction as to whether, you know, someone might have raised a red flag or done something wrong. Uh, you know, you could be uh, completely innocent and yet you're having your personal information stored and gathered in government databases. And that's an issue of huge concern uh, for us. And we've been running uh, any number of campaigns, uh, uh, both here in Canada and also globally uh, around that. Okay. Um, any past campaign or current one that was your favorite or you felt was the single most important one and why? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I do actually have a, a personal favorite. Uh, a year, about a year and a half ago here in Canada, we embarked on a big uh, crowdsourcing uh, program. Uh, we were faced with all these privacy threats, uh, partly from the kind of online spying that I've, I've just described, but also partly because the Canadian government was bringing forward 
quite dangerous legislation uh, that gave the spy agencies pretty enormous power uh, to uh, collect information uh, and even to, to act on that uh, information. Uh, so we were faced with this really tough, a very challenging climate uh, for online privacy. And while on the one hand, we certainly wanted to push back against uh, this sort of overreach uh, by the intelligence agencies. On the other hand, we saw there was a bigger problem here, that we actually needed a positive agenda, that we don't just need to roll back the kind of spying that's taking place. We actually need to strengthen uh, privacy rules uh, for all citizens, uh, because certainly here in Canada and also in pretty much, I think, many other countries around the world, our privacy safeguards were developed for a different era. Uh, they were developed for an era in which, you know, people would write to each other using pen and paper and the mail. Uh, they were uh, developed for an era where we, uh, a lot of communication just took place using landline uh, telephone calls. Uh, so the result of that is that we've got much stronger privacy protections for those more traditional forms of communication than we do for our online uh, forms of communication. So we actually reached out to Canadians. Over 100,000 people uh, took part in one way or another and helped us shape a really positive agenda uh, for what strong uh, privacy rules could look like. Um, and, you know, we, we've taken that forward. It all uh, we turned it into, I think it's about a 60 or 70 page uh, report. So setting out pretty detailed proposals uh, across a whole range of areas. And, uh, you know, while that project was specific to Canada, a lot of the lessons and a lot of the recommendations are, uh, are also relevant uh, worldwide. So that's one I think I'm particularly, uh, certainly when I look back on the last few years, that's one I'm particularly uh, proud of. That's great. Okay. And what, what methods will you use in a campaign? You spoke about directly connecting with Canadian citizens. You know, do you use email, phone calls, call a politician, email a politician, donations? What, what kind of mixture do you guys use? Oh, we use pretty much every tool we have at our disposal to try and make sure that uh, the voices of citizens can be uh, taken and placed before decision makers, placed before uh, the people who, uh, you know, who are making the calls on, on these kind of important uh, digital rights issues. So, yeah, and that can range from everything from your standard uh, online petition, uh, which, you know, those, those can be more impactful than, than many people give them credit for. Uh, we've had upwards of, uh, I think our largest petition had over half a million uh, people on it, for example. Uh, but we also create more, more sophisticated tools as well. Uh, tools that, for example, uh, make it quite easy for you to get a letter into your local newspaper, uh, tools that make it easy for you to write to your uh, local representative, elected representative. Um, we've even, we've just actually rolled out a tool that uh, uh, lets people uh, uh, submit input into a, a government consultation that's taking place on uh, privacy and security uh, issues. Uh, I guess the common thread that links all of these kind of tactics is, is simply our, our desire to make it as easy as possible uh, for people to make their voice heard where it counts. Uh, so we're all about leveraging the power of the Internet uh, in that kind of uh, I, what I think is a really a democratizing uh, way, uh, ensuring that citizens do feel empowered uh, to speak up when they disagree with something 
that the government is doing uh, and kind of demystifying the, the process by which uh, people can do that. Uh, and that does seem to resonate with people. I think that's why uh, we've seen the growth uh, that we have uh, over the last few years. Yeah, I've seen some of the really interesting grassroots stuff I've seen you guys do is um, here's an issue, email your politician, here's their name, here's how to contact them. You know, everyone let's email politician X and let them know you stand against this issue. Or call this yep. other one, you know, call your representative and let them know you stand against this issue. Do those types of campaigns work and how successful are they? And what's what's the result when a given official gets a flood of calls or a flood of emails? Oh, they absolutely do work. Often the result is that the official will get in touch with us to, you know, at least let us know that they're that they're listening. Um, you know, you can't win every battle. Uh, a lot of these are, are political issues. Uh, sometimes, you know, certainly the previous federal government here uh, was really kind of hell-bent on bringing in uh, new surveillance measures, no matter how unpopular they are. Uh, but in general, politicians are elected by their citizens, uh, by their constituents. Uh, so if they get a flood of uh, emails and phone calls from those constituents, from the voters, uh, it would be a very unwise politician who would ignore that outpouring. Uh, so in general, we think it's, we do find it's a really, it, it does have impact. Uh, most politicians uh, worth their salt. Anyone who wants to get reelected uh, does have to sit up and take notice uh, when uh, when their voters speak out. Uh, and we're constantly, as I say, looking for new ways in which we can make sure uh, that citizens' voices do get heard. Okay. Um, what have you seen makes a successful campaign versus one that just doesn't have any legs? Any particulars that you noticed? Yeah, there are, there are some some common uh, commonalities. I think often in the world of digital rights, uh, you, you, these issues can initially appear as quite complex, as uh, very uh, you know detailed. Um, it's often people, for example, who are proposing uh, you know very negative changes to copyright law. They like to sort of mask that in all kinds of complicated uh, policy speak in the hope that uh, people won't understand it and they'll just uh, get their way. So a big part of what we do is take those complex issues. We work with leading uh, experts in academia uh, here in Canada and around the world to really uh, distill those issues down, make them clear, make them accessible, make it really obvious to people what's at stake here. And then that's where we can then, uh, once we do that, once we make it clearer what the stakes are on any given issue, uh, we find that then uh, people do come on board, people really grasp it, and people uh, are motivated to uh, to speak out, uh, whether it's a negative thing that we're trying to stop or whether it's a positive thing that we're trying to uh, push forward. Okay. Have have you surveyed your um your group, your constituents to see which issues they would like to see brought and do you take outside feedback or is it do you have a group of people that kind of decide the issues based on what's going on in the world? Oh, we've always been a very sort of grassroots driven uh, organization. That's been baked into our DNA right from the start, uh, not least because of the work of our uh, the founder, Steve Anderson, who, who created 
open media, I think, what, seven years ago now, uh, maybe eight years ago. Uh, so, no, we really, really place a very high priority on, on crowdsourcing input uh, from our community. Uh, we do an annual survey of our entire uh, support base, and that's what upwards of uh, 750,000 people uh, each and every year. Uh, and that does give us, and we, we go out and we ask them, you know, what are the issues that matter most uh, for you? Uh, because, you know, when it comes to our staff, we're a small team. Uh, there's only so much that we can take on. Uh, and if we want to do things right, it really means putting in the putting in the time, putting in the effort. So we want to make sure that we're putting our uh, kind of limited uh, resources uh, where they will have the most impact, uh, and also where uh, on the issues that our, our community, that our supporters uh, and internet users in general uh, care most strongly about. Okay, and this is probably an of course question, but. Has open media been criticized publicly or attacked because of the work it's trying to do? Oh, <laughs> yes, of, of course. Um, you know, often these uh, these issues that we take on are are challenging. We're often up against very, very powerful uh, vested interests, whether that's uh, big telecom and monopolies trying to shore up their uh, position and crush the competition, uh, whether it's uh, powerful surveillance agencies uh, pushing their own agenda, often uh, through back channels and private, uh, whether that's through uh, old media giants, you know, trying to use uh, copyright rules to censor free expression or to limit what people can, uh, how people can share and collaborate online. So, yep, certainly we were, there's no shortage of, uh, of, of criticism from those powerful interests. Uh, but the best thing is, is that we often uh, we have so many people on our side uh, that we can point to and say, you know, look, 50,000 people disagree with you. We've got 50,000 people who actually want us to move in a more positive direction, who want us to roll back uh, the surveillance state, who want us to ensure proper choice and competition in our telecom market so that we can get those uh, very expensive uh, monthly bills down. Uh, people who want to ensure that we can all uh, share and work together online without fear of uh, uh, unwarranted uh, copyright lawsuits. So, in general, that tends to be the the uh, the kind of the, the conflicts in which we find ourselves is where we've got a great mass of uh, citizens and internet users on the one side, and then a uh, sort of powerful uh, vested interests. Uh, on the other side, and then often it's either a regulatory body or a government uh, institution uh, in the middle that will be making the call at the end of the day. What If there's an issue that, you know, someone feels strongly about and they let you guys know but you don't have the capacity to do it or there's even bigger issues that you are working on, what do you recommend someone does? Uh, we, we work really closely with a whole range of uh, good partnerships uh, with other groups that we've built up uh, over the last few years. Uh, so almost always if someone approaches us with a concern that's either just something we, we can't take on right at that moment or often it's something that's uh, uh, out of scope for our digital rights mandate. Perhaps it's a privacy issue, but it's not really a, an online privacy issue. Uh, we'd almost always be able to uh, recommend uh, that that person you know, contact one of our partner groups who does, which would work, uh, you know, on the issues that they care about. Um, yeah. Often as well, you know, we, we keep a watching eye on a whole range of these uh, uh, issues and challenges that are bubbling up pretty much every day. 
uh, you know, the world of uh, digital rights and freedoms is a very interesting and a constantly changing one. Uh, you know, as the guy responsible for our media work, uh, you know, every morning I, I scan the media and then every day there are new developments on all the areas uh, on which we work. So we're careful to try and keep on top of all of those. And uh, even if it's something that we can't directly campaign on, we'd often use, for example, our social media channels uh, to help raise awareness uh, of those issues as well. And so besides getting uh, petitions together, getting people to call politicians, email them, et cetera, do you use any legal um, type interventions? So in the U.S., that may be a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, or an amicus brief where you comment on a case. I don't know the equivalent in Canada, but do you mm -hmm. actually employ legal tools um, that are implemented by attorneys, lawyers, to, uh, to make your voice heard more strongly? Yes, as we've grown, so especially over the last couple of years, we've increasingly started to get more involved in the kind of the detailed, substantial legal and policy work uh, that's often necessary if we're to have impact, uh, for example, at a regulatory body or before a court. Uh, I spoke earlier about the intervention that we've made at the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, we, we have uh, an external uh, legal counsel who's been uh, leading the, that, that process uh, for us. Uh, we're also uh, heavily involved uh, very often we find ourselves before the telecom regulator uh, here in Canada, the CRCC. There are equivalent to the FCC. And again, there, you know, that requires a lot of very detailed uh, policy and legal work uh, that we are either we're sort of growing our capacity to take that on in-house at Open Media, uh, but we'd also often work with uh, top experts in academia or in or just in the in in the field uh, to uh, to work together to pull those uh, interventions uh, together for us. Okay. Um, oh, just briefly, some of the partner organizations that you mentioned. If there's an issue that either is outside of your scope or you don't have capacity to take on, can you name a few? As a resource to people? Oh, sure. I mean, in, in the U.S., the ones that would come most obviously to mind are uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, they've been going for uh, many, many years uh, to support uh, digital rights. And uh, rather like ourselves, uh, they uh, operate globally, but they're, they're based uh, in the United States. We often find ourselves partnering uh, with the EFF on uh, any number of campaigns. Uh, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, uh, would be another uh, valuable partner of ours and, and a lot of our uh, privacy work. You know, they've uh, supported some of our campaigns. We'd often find ourselves uh, supporting theirs, uh, especially around uh, issues of surveillance. Um, there are other organizations like Free Press, uh, Fight for the Future, uh, that we see as very valuable uh, American uh, uh, partners and, and friends of ours. Uh, we also often share each other's content, amplify each other's uh, campaigns, because uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're working, we're often working uh, in, a, in a common cause. Okay. Where do you see open media going in the next, uh, you know, three to five years as events evolve? Oh, that's a, that's a, a, a fantastic question. You know, that's one that often I, I, one, I wonder about myself. I think 
just over those three years, three and a half years I've been here, I've seen this organization grow a, a great deal. I think, you know, just in terms of our uh, internal capacity, our staff size, we've uh, uh, over doubled. Our community has grown uh, enormously uh, over recent years. We've started taking on uh, much more international work. So I think those trends will continue. Um, I think the sort of the threats to the open internet that we are working against are, are continuing to uh, multiply. Uh, you know, we're seeing worse, you know, re- really bad news coming out of a lot of countries when it does come to online privacy and surveillance. Some very worrying laws being passed in countries like France, Australia, the UK is considering one uh, at the moment. So I think that's going to be a big challenge for us. And I think the whole area of uh, copyright and how we can make sure that copyright rules make sense in a digital, globally connected age, that is also increasingly going to be a live uh, topic of discussion for many years to come. I believe we're seeing this in the European Union. Uh, we're seeing this here in Canada and in many other uh, jurisdictions around the world as well. Uh, and thirdly, uh, the whole issue of net neutrality, uh, the idea that the Internet should be free and open, uh, that uh, it should be a level playing field uh, and an engine for economic innovation uh that as well is a really key battleground uh we saw there was a huge and one of the most i think successful uh uh, political battles that we've been involved in was at the fcc in the u.s uh, a couple of years ago uh on the issue of net neutrality when ourselves many many other groups and millions of everyday american citizens all working together to ensure we could uh save uh, net neutrality and in fact bring in stronger net neutrality rules and at the end of the day that was a success in the states uh, but we're seeing threats to, we're still seeing threats to net neutrality in the US uh, but we're also seeing those threats elsewhere in the world as well so you know long story short there's going to be a lot to uh, keep us busy over the years ahead I'm pretty confident about that yeah, one one last issue I did want to ask you about is uh, ICANN, I-C-A-N-N. Um, it was slated just this past September yes. 30th to to um, essentially cede control, from what I understand, of the U.S. from the U.S. of the internet to a, an international governing body. What are you seeing is happening with that situation, and what do you think the uh, implications going to be if it does go global versus staying in the U.S. From, from, what, from what I know of that issue, I think this is actually, and I've seen a lot of quite people posting quite scary things about this, that this is handing over the Internet to the Russians and the Chinese. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. It does seem like this is a fairly uh, sensible proposal that would uh, take ICANN out from under the aegis of the uh, State Department, I believe it is, and on into a, a more, put it under the umbrella of a non-profit a foundation that would be responsible uh, for its uh, activities. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's not an issue that we've uh, delved terribly deeply into, uh, but I think uh, some of the language that's being used around this is is, uh, is inaccurate. I think uh, what seems to be pro- being proposed is, on the whole, I think, a fairly uh, common-sense approach. Okay, very good. So, um, for listeners to this podcast, how can they get involved with open media and your digital rights initiatives uh, to support you? Great. Uh, there are a number of ways. Uh, firstly, check out our website at openmedia.org. 
uh, at any given time, we're often running several different uh, campaigns uh, around the world uh, simultaneously. So uh, if there are issues you're particularly interested in, such as privacy or copyright uh, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, there are plenty of ways in which you can uh, get involved, uh, petitions and, and other tools. Uh, we also just use our website as a great platform for information sharing. We share articles uh, on digital rights issues, uh, on a whole range of digital rights issues from right across the world. Uh, people can also join our uh, Facebook community. I think we've over uh, up to nearly 120,000 people on Facebook now, so it's always a very lively uh, forum for discussion. Pretty much everything we post there uh, can spark a lively debate. Uh, we also have a lively Twitter feed as well, so those are both uh, ways people can get involved. Um, and finally, we have a weekly uh, newsletter that we call the Internet Insider, and again, uh, instructions for uh, signing up on that are found on our website at uh, openmedia.org. Um, you know, if you join any one of our campaigns, if you, for example, mm -hmm. sign a petition, then we make sure to keep you in the loop as that campaign develops, uh, keep you up to date with all the latest developments, uh, what you can do to help, uh, you know, basically how, how, how that campaign is going. Um, I'd say another characteristic of open media is, is we don't just run, uh, you know, a petition a week, you know, and then shut it down and then move on to the next one. When we take on campaigns, we do it for the we're in it for the long haul. Uh, so often a petition is just the start uh, and we really keep in touch with that. You know, we've been working on some of our campaigns uh, for as long as I've been here for, for years and years uh, because that's wow. just what you've got to do. Uh, to, to, you've got to maintain that sustained approach uh, if you're going to have success uh, at the end of the day. But uh, So, yeah, openmedia.org is the best place for your listeners to start. All right, and um, any other benefits from becoming a member? Uh, things people get. You have different level memberships. Um. Oh, uh, we 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 we, uh, we actually don't call. We we, we, call, we see ourselves as a community, and and uh, we have supporters. Uh, but there's no formal membership. It's not like you. Uh, we welcome donations, of course, as any uh, grassroots funded uh, nonprofit uh, would. Uh, but there's no sort of formal membership where you know if you pay twenty dollars, you become a, a formal member. Uh, plenty of our support. You know, it's up to each individual supporter to decide how much they want to get involved uh, and in what ways they want to get involved. Uh, for some people, that's true. Being very active on our campaigns, even if they're not in a position where they can donate money. Uh, for other people uh, who might lead busy lives, they mightn't have the time that they would like to get involved on the campaign side of things, but they would have the financial resources uh, to help keep those campaigns uh, uh, moving along. So it's really, we leave it up to each individual supporter to uh, determine you know, what the best way uh, it is for, for them to uh, support us. Okay, very good. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on the line and uh, talking about the work you guys do. I, I'm a subscriber. I see that the, it's, it's really great work and it's made me aware of issues that I've been too busy or just, just ignorant of that, that affect me and a lot of other people. So I'm thankful for what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, and, um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. And thanks for coming. Uh, this has been a great interview. Well, thanks very much for, for having me. I've really enjoyed the uh, opportunity, and I hope your listeners have uh, found it interesting. You've been listening to Almost Here, a 
Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.